Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. We begin, though, with the quarterly earnings season, with JP Morgan down in the pre-market by about four-tenths of 1%. I'm going to whip through some of the headline numbers. JP Morgan four-quarter adjusted revenue came in at $25.45 billion, the estimate $25.51. The fourth-quarter adjusted EPS came in at $1.76. Fixed income trading revenue well below analyst estimates. These results, of course, include a $2.4 billion charge as a result of a tax bill. And to get some guidance on where JP Morgan sees the effective tax rate for 2018. They see it around 19%. I'm very pleased to say I can bring in Bloomberg's Dakin Campbell now to get us up to speed on, on what he sees in the numbers. We've been saying for a while, Dakin, we're expecting it to be a murky quarterly report from not just JP Morgan, but across the street. Yes, that's for, that's for sure. This is no exception uh, to get us started. One thing that I noticed in uh, the results is expenses are higher than analysts expected. That's never a good sign, especially at this point in the uh, in the business cycle for these banks. They've been slashing expenses for for years, and uh, and to be surprising on the upside in a quarter like this, I think maybe one reason why the shares are down. I- I'm not sure how much guidance we can take from the intraday move pre market because they had such a monster year last year. Dakin, going forward, I'm still sitting here wondering where the revenue comes from. Let's. Do with the investment bank first. Trading revenue has been rough for a while. Volatility is not there. Client activity won't be what it otherwise would be. Are we going to see a change this year? That's the hope, certainly, uh, among Wall Street trading desks. Uh, there is some reason for optimism. You, you've got central banks uh, and monetary policy diverging around the world. There is some thought that that's going to help uh, bring volatility back into the markets and give some opportunities for both clients and uh, and traders. Uh, but we've been we talked about that in 2017, and it didn't really uh, come to fruition. So uh, I think that's still a question mark for 2018. So we've got J.P. Morgan, and typically at Bloomberg, we talk about the big investment bank, and we don't spend much time talking about Chase. Chase, of course, a massive retail arm. Can these guys continue to increase the net interest margin and continue to maintain such low deposit beta. And what I mean by cutting through the jargon, can they continue to ignore the rate rises that come from the Federal Reserve without passing them on to the deposit base? That is the big question. Uh, You know, this is... Interest rates have never been at 0% before. And so coming off of a floor like that, a lot of analysts have had a hard time modeling what uh, deposit betas or how much banks will have to pay depositors. Uh, It's not like any other cycle. And so... We have started seeing interest rates, deposit rates tick tick up, and so there is some indication that maybe that will continue and make it a little bit harder for banks to expand their margin as much as they as they may like. But again, we're coming off a very low base. Yeah. Banks typically can move the and they position themselves; they can move the rate that they're getting on the loans uh, more quickly than they than <clears throat> they typically do on the deposits. So that should allow them to well, expand that margin. Dakin Campbell with us is he's going to get ready for uh, his reporting on this and to advance the story further. We like to do that with Brad Hintz, legendary at Sanford Bernstein, his black book, 
uh, was a required historical and present tense read for years. Buy, hold, sell in the banks, and he now has a shingle out. It's a New York University Stern School of Business where he crushes people with quality C's each and every quarter. Professor Hintz, wonderful to have you uh, with us. I want to wax philosophical seeing a Bloomberg headline, J.P. Morgan fixed income trading revenue drops 34%. Do we have an excess of banking in America or what we're really dealing with here is there's too much muchedness in banking? <laughs> um, well, I, that's a it, you you could argue that on the retail side, which is if you if you think of the mil- millennials, the millennials probably <clears throat> don't visit bank branches a lot. So, are so we what see we've less seen, bank branches? Yeah, I think there's a absolutely certain we your but the your lead in which is fixed income. Fixed income has already cut back. I mean, what you're what you're seeing with fixed income is a recognition on the part of all the banks that there will be a fixed income market. Someone at some point is going to have to pay for liquidity. Um, at some point, the, the the Volcker rules will 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 loosen up a little bit so that right. you can make money from market making. But you know, right now that is that is a hope. Right? Okay, that's it's a hope. I love that. A hope. You could say that in academics, they can hope. Professor Hint says it like three times in any given lecture that he is. Forget about the hope. Jamie Dimon, Brian Moynihan, and the rest, they have to deal with this. Have they cut trading to the bone, or is there more to come? I think there's a feeling out there that they've cut <clears throat> trading to the bone. Uh, one one thing we we haven't talked about is how you sort of uh, convince some traders to leave the bank when you don't want to cut them necessarily. How do you do uh, that, Chief Financial Officer Hints? Um, That's called a buyout, right? <laughs> Something like that. You uh, you you start seeing that they're not invited to the uh, to the, the the best meetings. Their clients are taken away from them, and the next thing you wait. Know, that sounds like Bloomberg. <laughs> Dakin, Dakin, this is the kickoff to an earnings season. Do you, do you sense, you know, within our team, a similarity bank to bank in terms? I mean, John, what's it like in the United Kingdom? Is it trading trading that slow there as well? Trading slow, trading slow across the board. But I think client mix has been really important over the last couple of quarters, depending on the client mix. If you're really exposed to the institutional clients, the hedge funds, for instance, then the VIX tells the story of what the quarter is going to be like. But if you've got a real good corporate client mix, like, say, Bank of America, fixed income trading holds up because you've been exposed to that big boom in corporate debt issuance that we've had over the last couple of years. Is that going to be important this time around, Dakin, as well? That yes, I we think so. But J.P. Morgan is one of those banks that has that flow business, has a lot of corporate clients, yeah. and they turned in a disappointing fixed income quarter. So I I just sort of shudder to think of what people at Goldman are thinking on a well, day like today. The question. We take one set of earnings and we extrapolate it forward. We think about what's J.P. Morgan going to report now after Bank of America say, and then next up Goldman Sachs as well. What's the read for Bank B of A and and Goldman Sachs next week? Yeah, the read for B of A and City, I would add to the equation, which also have big corporate businesses like uh, like J.P. Morgan, is you know it could be down thirty four percent, maybe a little bit less. All three of them coming into the quarter said uh, trading overall was going to be down about fifteen percent, so they were all in the in the range. Uh, for the Goldman Sachs and the Morgan Stanleys of the world, which have less of a corporate uh, business, less flow trading. 
the the story may be even uglier this quarter. I mean, I think that's going to be the read out of looking at J.P. Morgan. If they can't turn in a good quarter yeah. on fixed income I, trading, I, then 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 how is Goldman going to do? Or Brad Hintz, I just got a first statistic here. The earnings have come out really nudgy today in J.P. Morgan. They used they're best in class in terms of putting out earnings, and it's been a struggle to get the data. Brad Hintz, seven percent ROE. I'm sorry, managers have to stand up and do something, right? Yes. Um, recognize 10% is viewed as good. I mean, well, that's the cost of capital of these banks. So, I mean, what has happened is we've become used to the idea of, of you know, below cost of capital performance. Jamie's got the best firm. Now, this quarter, this quarter is going to be an unusual quarter, right? Because we've got all these tax rates It's going to be a mess, Professor, isn't it? That's an opportunity, if you're the CFO, to throw everything you can into it. Because the analysts are going to, are, are going to look at the quarter and say, it's an aberration. I'm not going to worry about it, right? And so you throw extra expenses, you write things off, you let people go. Yeah. This is the, 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 any time you have an event like this, it's a, it's yeah. an opportunity to take and, the wheelbarrow out. And John, the tier one capitals UBS like. I mean, twelve point one percent, twelve point four percent common equity tier one capital. Dakin, they're on the edge of Credit Suisse and UBS in terms of financial integrity. They're ho they're holding a lot of capital. Yes, I, they they would certainly. For all of Jamie talks about his fortress balance sheet, he would certainly well, like to hold less capital. Okay, this has been a Dakin Campbell. Get back to work at your real job. And Brad Hans, thank you so much for being with us today. Look for Dakin Campbell's work on Bloomberg News. Further depth on J.P. Morgan and American banking. This is Bloomberg. We are more than close to a 2% two-year yield. That means it's a good time to talk to Ellen Zentner of Morgan Stanley. Uh, she, over the years, has been uh, wonderful at parsing Y equals C plus I plus G plus NX and really had great acclaim 18 months and two years ago on saying this is a Fed that would be forced to wait and wait and wait. Is a 2% yield on the two-year a signal? that we're going to have a significant set of rate increases this year? Uh, well, I think that, uh, you know, we expect three rate hikes, right? And if the 10-year uh, does not move much, or if it moves lower, yields on the 10-year, then you're going to have a very flat yield curve. Uh, and so the Fed is going to have a very difficult uh, decision at that time, say in the third quarter of this year, of <clears throat> do they push it further because financial conditions may still be easy yeah. and tell them that they should go further or do they take a flat yield curve uh as 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 a sign that if you go further you're going to risk inverting okay. the yield curve but what's missing is inflation you're one of yeah. the great parsers of inflation do you just hope inflation's out there if you're chairman powell do you wish for it as it cross my fingers hope to die how do you do all this if there's no inflation well so hope is a big piece of it Right. Yeah. As a forecaster, you do your best forecasting where you think inflation will go and developments in the economy and the way the data comes in will either give you more confidence about that assumption or less confidence about their assumption. And how confident you are in your inflation forecast that we will get to the two percent uh, goal at some point over the medium term horizon yeah. will dictate what they do today. 
Uh, and so basically, the Matt Hornback, our global head of rate strategy, sees the 10-year yield on the 10-year moving lower this year. Uh, uh, basically, a completely flat yield curve in the third quarter and slightly inverted in the fourth quarter. Part of what's driving that uh, estimate of his is the fact that we have such a tepid forecast for inflation. We're coming in lower than what the Fed expects, than what consensus expects in terms of the path we're looking for. And in his estimation, if the Fed continues to hike rates yeah. with inflation not materializing, right, you're going to continue to get a market that bets every hike is a mistake and that recession is around the corner, and it's just going to be very difficult to see how the yield curve steepens in that environment. And Ellen, I'm going to have the uh, the privilege of speaking to Matt Hornback a little bit later on, on Bloomberg TV, so I'm looking forward to having this conversation with him. Wait, wait, was that a shameless plug before 7.30 that was a for a shameless TV plug show? for the company we both Before 7.30? And in my <laughs> humble opinion, Matt Hornback is an excellent guest, so it ought to be Thank a you, really Ellen. good conversation. Thank you. Thank you very much. Tom, can you just let us have a conversation Please. now? Thank you. Um, CPI is going to come in a little bit later. It's yeah. not as if we don't have any inflation. It's going to be north of 2% year on year. You back out food and energy, it's going to be around 170. Mm-hmm. They're the estimates, the previous number, quite similar as well. Is it a bit disingenuous to say there is no inflation in the United States of America? Because we do see some. Right. We do see inflation. That's price growth and prices are growing, but they're just not growing uh, uh, quick as quickly as the Fed would like them to. Right. And there's not enough evidence, especially when you look at core PCE, they're, they're the measure they anchor their 2% goal around. There's just not enough evidence to him to them that there is a sustained pickup in inflation. Uh, but they believe that the recipe is there. Growth is coming in well above potential. The unemployment rate is low, much lower than where they think full employment is. Uh, And they're keeping financial conditions very easy to encourage those inflationary pressures to build. And that's why they have confidence that they will get to 2% sometime over the medium term. Now, notice I keep stressing the medium term. For the Fed, they don't need to see 2% now or tomorrow in order to raise rates. They just need to be convinced that the right... Uh, environment is there for it to get there over time. But the market is much too impatient for that. And you're not convinced that they can get to that? No, we're not. We're not convinced. And I tell you what, the we have been doing the traditional way of forecasting inflation for a long time. Inflation expectations, lagged values of actual inflation, trade weighted dollar, all of the above. But we had not properly taken into account technological effects on inflation. And when we did, it just brings the path down that much lower. One minute. Morgan Stanley is acclaimed for parsing this strange thing, productivity. What are you observing in the next one quarter, two quarters, three quarters on productivity? What are you looking for? Uh, We've got a a cyclical rise in, in CapEx that has already led to higher rates of productivity. Uh, and so we're looking between one and a one and a half percent, one to one and a half percent sustained in productivity. And the story there is that you just take that in a vacuum, it looks pretty tepid, yeah. right? But compared to about flat for the last five to six years, I think that's as good as it gets. And that's a pretty okay. good story. A cyclical pickup in productivity can stretch the cycle for longer. Ellen Zentner, thank you so much. With Morgan Thanks. Stanley on this important day. Lots of news flow and some real shifts going on.
Okay, let's get focused. Bank of America, 210,000 employees. J.P. Morgan, 251,000. Wells Fargo, even more, 268,000. And Citigroup, it's a tiny bank, 213,000 as well. He's out of Kellogg at Northwestern, a real MBA program. Neil Dar joins us with PwC on financial services. What I love about Northwestern and the legacy of it, the mic's over there, Neil. you got to get close to the mic. What, what I love about Northwestern is the core curricula. If you were to teach financial services right now within the core curricula at Northwestern, what would be your number one message to the best and brightest? There's a lot of change out there. There's a lot of change, and we have to look at things that are impacting the industry broadly, uh, coming at us in a lot of different directions. Technology is front and center. I did a panel at Davos three or four years ago. The third world was way ahead of us on use of technology. What are the big countries, America, United Kingdom, Germany, et cetera, what are they doing in the next 24 months on technology? Well, technology, if you if you think about it over the last several years, there's been a lot of fintech activity where fintech has been doing a number of things that now the bigger companies are absorbing uh, either through acquisitions or actually just embracing it. Fintech at times can struggle to scale. Um, so every element of a company, at least in financial services, what we see across the, the banks, the insurers, and, and the asset managers are looking at front office, mid office, and back office in relation to how technology can make things um, uh, more efficient, firstly, and then secondly, changing the customer experience. If I have a million employees at the top five or six banks total, how many of them are not going to be employed at those banks in 24 months or far more importantly, five years? That's a great question. They've, they've got to right size at some point. Well, it's a great question. I mean, what we're seeing right now is what the real impact of digital labor is going to be. So, and what I mean by digital labor is things, you hear about things like robotic and artificial intelligence where it's making things more efficient. We're working through right now the life cycle of how that type of technology is going to impact the day-to-day business, and then that'll get to okay, but your knockout. If I walk home to the manse, okay, this is six bedrooms, five fireplaces, three dogs. I go by 18 banks. They're all empty. Forget about AI. Forget about robots. The old model of banking that PwC advises them on every single day is a dinosaur. How many bodies will go out the door well, over, on a percentage it basis? Is, it is changing dramatically. So your point around walking home and seeing the empty branches, we are seeing the customer experience dramatically change in relation to, uh, there was a survey that, that, uh, that we did uh, that shows 52%, 52% of folks are actually looking at digital banking in relation to the way they do things on a day in and day out basis, transferring money, um, paying bills. Um, so, so so your point is spot on in relation to what is that going to mean in relation to the... So when do I start seeing press conferences that aren't a lot of happy talk about tax bills and use of cash and are, I'm sorry, the model's over. I mean, I get it. Their control management is going to be do it gradually. I get that. Yep. But five years from now, on a given million employees... It's a huge part of American banking. I can't get a real answer on how many bodies on a percentage basis go out the door. Well, I, look, I think you're going to have to see these business models evolve. Evolve. Fair, okay? fair. And as these business models evolve, we will see natural knock-on impact. So on the people side of things, what we're seeing at a number of our clients uh, is folks actually embracing digital labor in relation to doing things differently. Fair. And then using 
their folks to actually do things differently in relation to an, um, analytics and, and actually doing a deeper dive into various things. Will that last over time? We'll see. What does it mean for mergers at the, at, at, at the regional banks? I mean, I, you know, we're talking this morning, JP Morgan can barely move the needle. They're so big. I went over the scope and scale of trillion dollar numbers with JP Morgan. What do the regionals do to compete with this new digital labor and new technology? Well, I think the regionals will continue to do consolidation. I, I think they'll continue to sort of uh, grow in that aspect. Um, they're doing interesting things because of different size and scale. I think the global banks just have a different footprint and profile, so they'll probably get bigger on on, on the global stage in in certain extent. Neil Dar with us with PwC, he's their head of financial services as well. Are the global American banks competitive? The global American banks are competitive in relation because that's a message I get in London. They are the U.S. banks are really competitive. They are competitive. What is the distinction of a given American banker going into a meeting in, in Poland than somebody from the other platforms, uh, France, uh, Switzerland, United Kingdom? Well, it depends on in relation to what part of the bank you're talking about. Fair. Um, but, um, but, but yes, U.S. banks are getting, uh, they are strong and they're getting stronger. Um, I think with uh, a bit uh, less regulation, you, you'll see the, these banks become even more competitive. Um, so, so, so it's, it's, it's a good place to be right now. Now these banks also are going through their own evolution in relation to sort of doing things more efficiently. Uh, so things around cost in relation to constantly mm -hmm. making things more, uh, better and improving the experience, but also looking at how to do, um, cost in a more cost-effective way. What do the banks do that are sort of lost in the cracks? They're either big, but they're not too big or they're... They're, they're maybe too big to be a regional. They're these, I don't want to mention names, but there's given banks worldwide where I can't figure out what the strategic mission is because they don't have scale. Well, so certain banks play in a very regional model um, and um, they will have to figure out um, what is their next pass in relation to, will they be able to invest uh, the, the way the bigger banks will? Uh, will they have the innovative culture uh, that, a, that a smaller fintech will in relation to disruption. Um, so you hit a good point uh, that those banks are constantly going to have to go through their own self-assessment in relation to, do we do something dramatic from a strategic Is that standpoint? happening in America in midsize and regional banks right now, that, that navel-gazing into the, the spring of this year? Well, uh, I mean, we're talking about banks speci specifically here. I think what we're seeing on the regional side of the banks is – um, on a smaller scale, many of the other things we just talked about on larger uh, banks, so the impact right. of digital, the impact of technology, the impact of artificial intelligence. We saw BlackRock today with, I thought, bang up numbers, 15% dividend increase, assets under management is obviously the key phrase. Three years ago, everybody wanted to be in asset management. Is that, is that over or is that trend just continue? I think asset managers will continue to grow in relation to- And uh, consolidate like Aberdeen did. I, I do think you will see consolidation in the industry in relation to, yeah. but, but also there's a lot of new product that's coming out within the asset management world um, in relation to more and more money is chasing yield. Um, and I think the strong, the strong will get stronger. 
Uh, and, Agreed. And, and I think you'll see that again through consolidation. But you've got to find a Greek letter to have as a Vogue thing for two years. I mean, we've done beta. We've done alpha. Don't we need a new Greek? Do they teach Greek letters at Kellogg? Do <laughs> we sure need, do. We need a Greek letter to, to you know, the gamma fund. Pim, are you going to invest in the gamma fund? I don't invest. <clears throat> you don't invest. <laughs> you okay. need money to invest. Neil, one final question uh, before we get you on to your Bitcoin day. Yeah, PwC Bitcoin, is that the new, the new name for the company? Where does Bitcoin fit into all all of your financial services consulting? Ah, uh, there's a lot of talk around relation to uh, cryptocurrency. Any action, or is it just talk? Uh, look, we have a lot of discussions um, across um, uh, the industry in relation to what does this mean in relation to regulation. What does it mean in relation to cyber? What does it mean in relation to uh, you know w way things are going to be done in the future? So, a lot of discussions. We'll see how this plays out over time. The answer is nobody really knows, do they? Mm. I think people are figuring it out. as Because, yeah. as, as I mean, we saw the IPO flutter or ETF flutter. I can't remember which it was now this week. And I guess SEC came in and said, eh, maybe not. Well, I think, again, you'll, we'll see regulation okay. around it. And I think it's developing. Neil Dar, thank you so much. PwC and Financial Services, good to catch up with him on a day of banking earnings. Really fascinating uh, to see the huge capitalization of the American banks. Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.